Will you please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, Romans 6, and the guys have some Bibles, that's why they've come to the front, they're going to make their way back. If you need a Bible, they will give one to you, just get their attention, it's marked at Romans 6, and you can keep that Bible as our gift to you. Author and pastor Colin Smith gives the illustration of three couples who met and became good friends while in college. And they determined that after they graduate, they're going to move and settle in different parts of the country, but they agree that they'll meet after 25 years, and when they do, they will tell the absolute truth about what's going on in their lives. And so 25 years later, the big day comes. And as they arrive at the agreed location, the first thing they notice about each other is some of the gray hair and the extra pounds around the middle. But after they have a good meal and they settle down to hear the truth about each other's lives, here's what comes forth. Pete and Mary, one of the three couples, goes first. The others had noticed that they had arrived separately and they were wondering why that was the case. And Pete says, we moved in together after college. We decided that marriage wasn't for us, but we wanted to be together, so we decided to see how things would work out. The truth is, we got on each other's nerves. And in the end, we decided we couldn't live together, and so we decided to go our separate ways about 10 years ago. Then it was Tom and Sandra's turn. They had had a long discussion on the way down in the car about what they would say. Sandra says, we agreed 25 years ago that we would tell the truth today. What are we going to say? And Sandra tells the others about how they were married soon after college and how they now have a beautiful home and three fine children, all of whom have graduated from the same college and they have excellent jobs. Everything seems so good, says Sandra, but the truth is, it isn't. There's no doubt about our commitment, but I feel there's a whole dimension missing. I feel as if our marriage is an empty shell. And when she finishes, she looks up intently at Tom, and Tom looks up at her, and their eyes meet, and Tom says, that's the truth. And then it's Dave and Linda's turn. Truth is, says Linda, we were married right after college, and we had our struggles. We had three kids close together. I don't know what we were thinking, she says. Money was tight. There were times when I thought we were just going to go crazy. And I've had a real problem with anger, says Dave, chipping in. At times, that's put a heavy strain on our relationship. But we've weathered some pretty heavy storms over the years, and the truth is we've become closer and closer. We promise to tell the truth today, and I have to say the truth is that we're closer now than we've been at any other time in our lives. Three relationships. One that's like an open door with no secure commitment. One that's committed but is a dimension short and lacks life and lacks love. And one that is a growing union. Now, which of these would be a description of your relationship with the Lord? Or perhaps better asked, Which of these three kinds of relationship would you want God to have with you? An open door, an empty shell, or a growing union? 
Well, it's obvious, is it not, that you can't have an open-door relationship with God because God doesn't enter into that kind of relationship. Throughout the Bible, we see God initiating relationships with people. And He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And though great strain may be brought on the relationship, God makes His people, God, those who God makes His people, He never turns His back on His commitment to them. And so there is no open-door, experimental kind of relationship that God is going to enter into with any of us. And we should all be extremely thankful that there's never going to come a time when God will tire of us. When God will just find us too irritating, He'll turn away from us and we'll be abandoned in the end. That will never happen because open-door relationships are contrary to God's nature. God offers to bring us into a relationship that's a a binding agreement, a solemn promise, a commitment that He makes to each of us when we come to Him through Jesus Christ. But then there's this second couple, Tom and Sandra. They had a committed, secure relationship. But that's, by their own testimony, that's all they had. And God does not want to bring us into that kind of relationship either. Because that's also short of His purpose for us in the Lord Jesus. God not only establishes relationships that are secure commitments with His people, but He also fills the life of His people with His love. He's not only the God of covenant. Our God is the God of covenant love. He has no uncommitted love. And He has no unloving commitments. And that's why the Bible, in the Bible, a good and growing marriage is a beautiful picture of the kind of relationship that God wants to establish with us through Jesus Christ. If you were to think about it, a good and growing marriage is one that is both legal on the one hand and relational on the other hand. It's both secure and at the same time it is close and intimate. And God wants to bring us into a deep relationship of covenant love in which we have that deep security of knowing He'll never leave us and yet at the same time the deep intimacy of actually sharing His life. And that vital, life-giving, and life-living aspect of our relationship with God is part of this multifaceted jewel that is the gospel, and that we've been considering over the last several weeks together. And we have in your outline our definition of the gospel that we've been using. I call your attention to that. It's inserted in your program. And we say at the top there that the gospel is the glorious message that God's grace has overcome our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then we have covered four of the six different aspects of this glorious gospel in previous weeks. And those are filled in for you in the chart that is on that insert and also on the screen. Now, if the gospel stops, though, at these four, then we could have commitment on the part of God toward us, but the life of that relationship could be stale and cold. You see, the first four that we have have covered of these six items that are part of the gospel, these are all things that God does unilaterally. God is the one who opens our minds and our ears 
so that we hear the call of the gospel in a way that we've never heard it before and thus delivers us from the persuasion of sin and gives us a new perspective, first line on the chart. It's God who breathes spiritual life into our spiritually dead souls and gives us a new heart. And God, the holy, righteous judge, looks at our sinfulness and he cannot violate the law, his own law, and then say it's all okay, I'll just overlook it. That would violate his holy character. And so God does for us what we could not do for ourselves. And God comes to earth and He lives the life that we should have lived. He dies the death that we deserved so that now the demands of God's holy justice are satisfied. Not satisfied by us, but by God the Son, Jesus Christ. So that God can then declare us righteous, even though we still struggle with sin. That declaration that we are righteous is a word in Scripture that we saw a few weeks ago. He justifies us. Third line on your chart. And in justifying us, He looks at us not through our sin, but through the righteousness of Jesus, so that we have, as we say on the chart, a new record. And then as we saw last week, God brings us into His household with the intention that we will live as sons and daughters of God, no longer separated from God because of our sin. But he's now become our father, and we're adopted into his family. Now, all of those whom God gives this new perspective and this new heart, all of them respond to God's initiative by believing in Jesus. And in turn, they are justified and they are adopted. And in order to be justified and adopted, we play a role. We participate in what God has determined to do in us and for us. But please note this distinction. We participate, but we don't have to cooperate. Now, what's the difference? I know it's morning, but engage your minds as best you can as I try to explain that difference. We participate in those, but we do not because, in fact, we cannot cooperate. The difference is that one involves work and the other does not. Those that God makes spiritually alive in calling us and regenerating us, as we say in your chart, they are in turn justified and adopted when they express faith. That is, they believe in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice, we participate by believing we do not work for it. And that's our part, our participation. We believe Jesus has done all the work. But to cooperate, operate means to work, to exert energy. And to cooperate means God does some work and we do some work. That is, we are co-workers in this fifth aspect of the gospel on your chart cooperating, co-working with God in what the Bible calls sanctification. And you see that on the screen. You see that on your insert. Now remember, as we try to explain then this cooperating and how we do some work in sanctification and God does some work in sanctification when all of the other four prior aspects of the gospel are all His work and we simply believe we do not work. Remember this. God doesn't just want a relationship of commitment. 
That is, a legal transaction in which He declares us righteous, but we do not grow into a loving relationship with Him. And that's why God does not stop at this first four items, as marvelous as they are. He then initiates the work to sanctify us. Now, what is that? What is sanctification? What is it that God does in sanctifying us? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, don't let the word, I know we're Bible church types, many of us from a Baptist background, we're not catechetical kind of people, liturgical, you see catechism, it might scare you. Catechism is just a question and answer approach to learning. And then the Westminster Shorter Catechism, one of the questions is, what is sanctification? And here's the answer to question number 35. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Now, do you all see in that definition the work of God? This is a work of God's free grace, whereby God enables. But then you notice at the end of that as well, then our cooperating, our work as well, we die and we live. Die unto sin, live unto righteousness. And this is all in keeping with what the Word of God teaches throughout. In your Old Testament, as we will see a bit later, but also in your New Testament. The New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Bible says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. The word sanctified in Scripture means to be made holy, to be set apart. In sanctification, we are increasingly, day by day, set apart from sin and to righteousness. And we, the Bible teaches, have a work to do in that. Now, where does the Bible say that, that we cooperate, that we are co-workers with God in this process of sanctification? Well, it says it in numerous places, one of which is Philippians chapter 2. As you have always obeyed, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here's why. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Now, notice that passage. Believers, us, we are being told, continue to obey. And that obedience looks like this, working outwardly what you are inwardly. Continue to manifest and display in the way you live what you are in reality in your standing before God. And you work in that, you obey, you work this out, but it is also God working in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose, co-operating, co-workers together in this process of sanctification. We see the same kind of thing in Colossians chapter 1. Paul, who wrote Colossians, says this, I strenuously contend, but I do it with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. Notice, it's Christ working in me, but I nevertheless strenuously contend. And the word that's translated strenuously contend is agonizo. We get our English word agonize. This is toiling work that Paul engages in in order to disseminate the, the gospel of Christ. 
And so some aspects of our salvation, our deliverance that is, that's what salvation to be saved means, to be rescued, to be delivered. Some aspects of that deliverance come, that come to us through the gospel, some of them are God working alone. Or the fancy term is um, monergistic, mono, one, and energy. And so it is God alone doing the work, exerting himself. Some of those aspects are God alone. While sanctification is synergistic, us working together with God. Now, why does God do some things unilaterally, and yet in sanctification we work with him? Why is that? Well, it's because that need that God supplies in the gospel and the way he works in us and through us at various aspects of the gospel, corresponds to the stage we are in in God's program for human history. Let me show you what I mean on the screen. You all know that before the fall, Adam and Eve were in this condition. They were able to sin, but they were able not to sin. So God made them able to obey him, and, they, and God gave them a test to do that. They were able to do that, or they were able to not obey, to sin. Able to sin, able not to sin. That was before the entrance, the, their decision to sin and plunge their progeny, all of us, into uh, sinfulness. That's before the fall. After the fall, they, are, they and we, all people, come into the world this way, not able not to sin. The Bible teaches that we can't do anything other than sin. That even our righteous deeds before God, Isaiah 64 and verse 6, are as filthy rags before Him because even when we do the right thing before coming to God through Jesus Christ in our sinful condition, even when we do the right thing, we never do the right thing for the right reason. And so we are not able not to sin. And so at this point, as sinners before God does anything to change us, we are dead in sin, unable, unable, notice, to respond to God's call. And so you've got in your outline these aspects of the gospel, and the very first one is God calling us. But in order for us to respond to that call, if we're dead in sin, God's got to do something. And thanks be to God, He does. He gives us the ability that we did not have in calling us. And in regenerating us, the second line in your chart. And he gives us a record and a position that we could not achieve ourselves. And so before the fall, we are able to sin and able not to sin. But our first parents chose to sin. And as a result, all who have followed them come into this world not able not to sin. But then after salvation. And that should say, after salvation. After salvation, we are able to sin and able not to sin. If you've come to the Lord through Jesus Christ, that's exactly where you are. It's where I am. I'm able to sin and I'm able not to sin. I used to be not able to do anything but sin. But now, I can sin or I cannot sin. And the question then becomes... In the words of a book, a title by the late Francis Schaeffer, How Shall We Then Live? 
God has guaranteed that we'll increasingly subdue sin in the process and progress of sanctification. Now, next week, we're going to see the last of the six items that's on your, your chart, glorification. And that's a blessed time which, in which we will not be able to sin. Not be able to sin. And so in the afterlife, we are able to sin, able not to sin now, but there's coming a time in the future when we will not be able to sin. What a blessed time that will be, will it not? The Bible teaches this throughout, as I've said, both the New Testament, we've already seen some passages in that regard in the second part of your Bible, but also in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 20, God says this, "'Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them.'" Now notice, I am the Lord who makes you holy. So on the one hand, you obey, you keep my decrees. On the other hand, I'm the one, I'm the God, who makes you holy. You see this cooperation. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 9, as God's people stood to go in and take the land that God had promised to them, God says this to them, Be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. And you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. You you see the synergism again, don't you? God says, I'm the one who's going to do this, but I'm going to do it through you. And you're going to go in and actually carry out the work, the work that I have determined to do through you. Now, the Bible then is quite clear and emphatic that sanctification is something we cooperate in that we strive and work with God in as we kill sin and live increasingly righteous lives. This is also seen in the fact that God gives commands throughout His Word, including the New Testament, for His people to obey. And He expects that we have the ability to do so because it is God who has given us that ability to obey as He requires. You all remember that your New Testament is filled with letters primarily, letters written to individuals and to churches. Those letters are often divided into two major sections. Each of the letters will often have a first section that is a teaching section that reminds us of who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us. It reminds us of our position in Him. But then after reminding us of that and setting what we're called to do in that context, then there is a second section that tells us what we are to carry out in order to live consistent with who we are. So you have examples of that in the letter to the Romans, 11 chapters telling us who we are in Christ. And then you come to chapter 12. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, in view of all of this, this is now how you should live. Same thing in Ephesians, same thing in Galatians. And so the first portion of the letters is about the gospel and our standing and our new position before God. That is those first four items on your chart. But the next portion is a call to live consistent with who we are. Now, here's why God does that. Here's why God says, now this is what you're to do, and you're to do it, and you're to be actively involved in it, and you're to work, and you're to exert energy. Here's why he does that. 
Though sanctification for God's children is inevitable, it is not automatic. It will inevitably happen because God has determined it will happen and because God is initiating and God is at work. But it's not automatic. We are not passive and robotic in the sanctification process. But rather, God gives us the means by which now this work is to be exerted, this cooperation on our part is to happen. It's achieved by obeying God's commands and in confrontation of sin between brothers and sisters and in counsel and in confession and in gathering together in God's church. He gives us all of these means of grace in order for us to do the work, cooperate in the work of sanctification. Now, I'm beating on that for this reason. One, because it's true, and you need to know it. But second, there are people who think that sanctification, like justification and like adoption, the things that God does unilaterally, they think that sanctification is just like that and that it takes place without our cooperation. You say, really, how could anybody think that? I'm just telling you, people think that. In fact, I'll mention in just a moment a quotation along those lines. But here's the danger in failing to see that sanctification is a cooperative process. The failure is that it will result in one of two errors depending on the kind of personality you have and the kind of background that you have. You will either think that you have nothing to do and you'll become what one author calls God's vacationer, irresponsible. I got nothing to do. Jesus just does it all and I'm just passive in the, in the process. Or you'll become convinced on the other extreme that it all depends on you. You're the key player and God's not a player at all and you'll become a mini, a small messiah. If you think that God does it all without your cooperation, you'll be a spiritual pacifist. And if you think that it all depends on you after you're saved, you'll become a spiritual activist. You hear the activist in some folks who are continually recounting what they've done or stayed away from in order to be more holy. You hear the pacifist in some folks in popular phrases like, let go and let God. You say, I've said that. That sounds okay to me. Well, it depends on what context you use it. My dear wife, is Kimmy in here? Good. It's just between us, all right? <laughs> you, you would never know this about my wife, but her testimony is that she loves to control things. And she's very capable, and when she sees something that needs to be done, she wants to do it, and she loves to control things. But part of God's sanctification in her is for her to be willing to relinquish control to the God who is ultimately in control. And that's her testimony. It's a beautiful testimony. And she, when she says let go and let God, she means I don't and can't take full control. I must let God take control. And if that is something like what we mean, then of course it is correct. But what many people mean by that is that I have no role to play in the sanctification process. Just let go and God does it all. There's a book that's just recently come out. Here's the title, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Now that's a really cool title. 
But as you read the book, you find out that it teaches some false doctrine about Christian growth and sanctification. On page 137 of that book, as it's speaking of sanctification, it says, because of what Jesus has done, quote, there is nothing left to do. Well, then what about all those commands in your New Testament? It seems like there's stuff for us to do, does it not? You know, when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, it means the work to give us a relationship with God is completed. But when God grants us that relationship, we are called to hear this now, live in that relationship. So think of it this way. Think about a family who adopts a child and brings him or her into their household. That child now needs to live in the light of this new home and this new family in which they have been brought. Unilaterally by the action of someone else, but now they must cooperate and live in harmony with and for the benefit of and out of love for the members of that family. Or think of it this way. If you were to construct a house, you could construct that edifice and you could say, there it is to the person for whom you have built it. And you could say it is finished. But now that person has to enter it and live in it. And you can give them the blueprint for how the house was constructed. But they also need a list of rooms and furnishings and how to use and how not to use. You need to know how to use rather than abuse that which has been provided. The Bible actually teaches that kind of thing about us. You are God's temple. God has made you. God has built you. He details the blueprint in Scripture. He tells you about how He's furnished it and how you're to use and not use the rooms. The Bible says, for instance, do not yield the instruments of your body to sin. It says to give our bodies, give our house, our temple in living sacrifice to Him. So in case you think I make this up, I like to quote people who are smarter than me. And I never have to look very far for people who are smarter than me. And one of those is the Puritan writer John Owen in his book, The Holy Spirit. He says, we need to consider our own duty and the grace of God. Some would separate these things as inconsistent. If holiness be our duty, there's no room for grace. If it be effective grace, there's no room for duty. But our duty and God's grace are nowhere opposed in the matter of sanctification. For the one supposes the other. We cannot perform our duty without the grace of God, that is, His enabling power. Nor does God give us His grace to any other end than that we may rightly perform our duty. In sanctification, we are reacting to how God has acted in us. And that's why the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. So here's a good way of thinking of sanctification. God plants within the believer the seed of holiness that sprouts and it takes root, and it grows, and it bears fruit. But at the same time, there's the corruption, the sinfulness that's within us that tends to choke and slow the progress of growth, but there is still growth, and that's the struggle. And friends, that's the normal Christian life. Now, I had you turn to Romans chapter 6. 
And you're all wondering at this point why I had you do that. Well, I, want, I had you turn there because I want you to see that we must live within the reality of what God has given us in the gospel. He has given us a new perspective, and He has given us a new heart, and He has given us a new record, and He has given us a new family. Those first four items on your chart. But now in sanctification, we must live in the light of what God has given us. And Romans chapter 6 speaks to that. Where we are told a couple of things that I want to rehearse quickly for you. That in the gospel, when we come to God through Jesus Christ, because of this unilateral work that he does in those first four items in your, in your list, when that happens, God makes us a new creature. And he gives us a new identity, first of all. And you see that new identity in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, Paul, who wrote the letter to the Romans, has spent five chapters explaining the origin and the effect of sin and Christ's provision for it and the reign of grace in our lives. And yet in all of those five chapters, he has not once asked, don't you know, until right now. And he's elaborated on all that's involved in Jesus' sacrifice for us. And he knows that those to whom he's writing have some idea about that. But this is something that many of them, like many of us, perhaps do, do not know. And what is it? That we've been baptized into Christ. Now, the word baptized in Scripture means literally, the word baptized means literally plunged, immersed, saturated. And so when we are baptized in water, we do so in that particular way of immersion symbolizing the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. Because it's one, what the Bible teaches, that's how everybody in the New Testament was, was baptized. And because it symbolized, symbolizes what has happened to us spiritually. And so verse 3 says we were plunged into Christ. The Holy Spirit unites us with what Jesus did, His death and His resurrection, such that we have a new identity. The Holy Spirit begins to live in us and He makes a connection into what Christ did 2,000 years ago to my life and to your life today. So that verse 8 of Romans chapter 6 can say that we died with Christ. And as a result of that, you are not the person you were. You are not yet what you will be, but thanks be to God, you are not what you were. And that's why the Bible says famously, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Or in Colossians chapter 3, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Or Paul can say famously of himself and his own life and what motivates him in the way he lives, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This new person who has a love for God in his heart, not a perfect love, but a real love and relationship and experience with God. Friends, it's not just a transaction on a ledger somewhere in heaven because God is not content to just have a commitment and a judicial transaction with you. 
but rather for you to have your life flowing through him, his life flowing through you. And so verse 5 of Romans chapter 6 says, we're not only united in his death, but in his resurrection also. That is, it's not just that our sins are forgiven and we're dead to the old way of life, we've also been given a new life. And these two things, the fact that we are dead to sin then, and alive unto righteousness because of Christ's death and resurrection with which we are united, these things are inseparable because they come from a relationship with the same person, Jesus Christ, and He cannot be separated. Hear this. When you have one part of what Jesus has done, you necessarily have the other because we're brought into union with Him. And that's why Ephesians chapter 1 says, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so life in Christ, sanctification, the life we live right now in the here and now, April 14, 2013, is not just turning over a new leaf or making a decision. It's a whole new life. Can you say that you have a new life? And if not... You're like that second of the three couples that we mentioned at the beginning, Tom and Sandra, who have a commitment but not a life. And this, friends, who we are in Christ because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, this should be our primary understanding of who we are. Our primary understanding of who we are should not be our circumstance. If we have negative circumstances, bad things that have happened to us or that we have done, divorced or uh, an alcohol, I'm an alcoholic or I've been laid off, that fixes one in that particular circumstance. Or if things are good, things are positive, my career's going well, family's doing, doing well, I'm enjoying my hobbies, but those things can all change. Our identity should not be in our circumstances, our identity should be in who we are in Jesus. And so that's why we then say, on your chart, if you'll take a look back at your chart, that fifth item is sanctification in which God delivers us, God delivers us from the practice of sin. And in delivering us from the practice of sin, day by day, bit by bit, moment by moment. He delivers us in the gospel from the practice of sin and He gives us a new life. You see, you were saved, you were delivered, you were rescued, not just for the sweet by and by, but for the here and now. To be different and to live different. We say at the bottom of your outline there, your take-home truth, that those who believe in Jesus are given the ability to live a new life. You see, I now can do what I couldn't do before because remember, not able not to sin. Remember that? That's all I could do before. I didn't have the ability to live a new life. But now in, sanctification, in, in salvation, I am able to sin, I am able not to sin, and increasingly in sanctification, increasingly I am to be not sinning. Now, almost done. 
But all of this talk about cooperation and the work that we must do can sound as though it detracts from the Bible's emphasis on faith throughout. That the life we live is the life of of faith. But understand this. Understand this, friends. The work we do in cooperating with God in sanctification, the work we do is faith work. It's initiated and motivated and carried out by faith. And sanctification is by faith because you all remember what faith is in your New Testament. Faith is the same word for belief in your New Testament, same Greek word. So when you see faith, you can see believe or belief. So sanctification is by faith because faith is believing. And we will only obey if we believe. Now what kinds of things do we, must we believe if we are going to be motivated to obey and cooperate with God in this work of sanctification? What kinds of things must we believe? We must believe that God is worth it. Even though he is devalued in the world, perhaps in our own families. We must believe that God is worth it. We must believe that it is better to obey. It is better to obey even though sin is pleasurable for a season. You see, I am motivated to obey and to renounce sin. The grace of God, Titus chapter 2 tells us, teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to deny ungodliness. Why does it do that? Because we believe that following God and obeying God is better than the pleasures of sin for a season. What else do we believe? We believe that our obedience will actually be rewarded by a faithful God. That God has promised to reward our labor of love for His name's sake. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 says, To stand firm, then, always giving yourselves at all times to the work of God, because you know that God will not forget your work on his behalf. And so we believe that it's rewarded even though incomplete, even though the work that I do and the work that you do is tainted with sin. God will reward the righteous things that we do, motivated by his spirit and for his glory. Even though my fa- and, and believing all along that my failure to please God, hear this, does not jeopardize my standing with God. You will only move forward in sanctification and cooperate with God in the work of sanctification if you understand that when I fail, and you will fail, and I fail, when I sin, it does not jeopardize my relationship with God. Though my work is feeble and incomplete, this faithful and gracious God will honor that. And you could fill out a very long list of things that we must believe, and in turn, if we believe, motivate us to then cooperate with God in this work of sanctification. The work is faith work, believing work. Now, how does it all begin? I say almost every week, here's what you should do. There may be some in this room who say, I've never had a relationship with God initiated in my life. It has to start. It has to be initiated. 
There's the initial understanding that I am a sinner, that I am separated from God, that I fit into that category of not able not to sin. That's all I can do. Even though I may be a good guy or a good gal, relatively speaking, from God's standpoint, I am not able not to sin. I'm a sinner. Recognize that Jesus did the work for you to give you a relationship with God. He died on the cross for your sin. He lived the life that you should have lived. Repent of your sin. Lord, I want to follow you with my life. And then you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. And you, in your own words, no magic formula, you say to God, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus is the sin bearer. I need the forgiveness that only he can provide. And so I ask you, Lord, to to save me, to rescue me, and I want to follow you with my life. He promises to do that very thing. But then, friends, what I've said here today is that's not the end. And for those of us who have done that, at some point in the past, that's not the end. The gospel continues. The good news continues. That God is continuing to work in us and we cooperate by faith works with that work that God is doing within us. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for the blessedness of the gospel and all of its multifaceted aspects. We thank you that it is your work that you are the one who enables us to respond to what you have done for us in Jesus Christ in the good news that is the gospel. And that when we have that initial response, that you don't leave us to ourselves, but rather you prompt works of faith, that you act within us to fulfill your good purpose in us. But Lord, you require, you demand, you deserve our cooperation in that work. And so help us not to be your vacationers, irresponsible. Help us to recognize as well that we are not to be activists as if it all depends on us. But because you are at work in us, now we can go forward with confidence because the one who has begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. I pray, Lord, that your people, that you have called out of the world and to yourself, will leave this place with a renewed energy and commitment and resolve to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to to display his character in the world into which you have called us to show you. Lord, I pray for any who entered this room without a relationship with the Lord God, that right now your spirit is moving on their heart and you are drawing them to yourself, that you are opening their understanding in ways that they have not had before. They've heard the gospel message perhaps, but now they're given a new persuasion. You are calling them effectively and you are imparting to them spiritual life so that they can respond now. We pray that they are and that your life begins living through them. To your glory, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.